This is the Marsh and Matt Show with Marshall Kellner and Matt Gallivan. All right, welcome to the first episode of the Marsh and Matt Show. We are very excited to be starting this new uh, this new podcast centered around Minnesota sports and uh, bringing on some interesting guests. We'll get to our first guest uh, this week here uh, momentarily, but uh, first wanted to welcome in my co-host, uh, Matt Gallivan. I'm, I'm Marshall Kellner, by the way. And uh, we met uh, in the seventh grade when I, uh, when I moved over to uh, Blake Middle School and uh, all the way through, uh, through Blake together. And then uh, a great rivalry in college with uh, me at USC and uh, Matt at Notre Dame. And uh, we've been very good friends uh, ever since. I was in Matt's wedding. Um, so I, I know all the, uh, the dirty details about, uh, about this guy and, uh, and, and vice versa. But uh, very excited to be talking sports uh, on a weekly basis uh, with you, Matt, and uh, excited to see what uh, what we can make of this thing. I'm glad that we can take uh, our many conversations over breakfast and uh, going back to middle school uh, and put it in this podcast format. People have been telling us to do that for a while, uh, and I've spent many years trying to set you straight on your unrealistic expectations for our uh, beloved Minnesota sports teams uh, and look forward to being uh, continuing to be the uh, jaded fan that grounds your, uh, your expectations. Yeah. If, if you're wondering who will, uh, who will pull me back down to earth, that'll be Matt and I'll be, I'll be making wild, uh, wild predictions, except when it comes to USC football, I think I've adopted your, your jaded uh, viewpoint as long as uh, Clay Helton is our, is our coach. So uh, lots of interesting topics, but we will try to keep it centered around Minnesota. We know that's what uh, that's what Minnesota people like. Uh, we are born and raised in Minnesota, by the way. Um, yes, we went off for school and uh, we've each lived other places um, around uh, this great country, but uh, but we're both back in Minnesota now and uh, that's where our interests mostly lie when it comes to to sports. So yeah, when a national topic warrants, we'll uh, we'll definitely comment on that but uh but in general we're going to keep it uh minnesota focused uh, which is how minnesota fans like it right yeah no one understands tortured minnesota sports fans like fellow tortured minnesota sports fans so you know there's always a lot to dissect with our uh teams that continuously break our heart um but then once again give us hope again so i think there will be a lot of great opportunities to dig into the details about our you know local teams that people really care about um, and go to a depth that you wouldn't get uh, when you're just solely focused on the national sports conversations. And you know I think it'll be really great to invite some of our um, local sports folks that know so much and really understand uh, more about where they came from, where where they ended up, how they ended up, uh, where they ended up, um, and get their you know, opinions on the most pressing uh, sports questions of the day. And that is a great lead in to our first guests uh, for week one, which is Lavelle E. Neal III, a longtime Minnesota Twins beat writer for the Minneapolis Star Tribune, recently turned columnist, a sports columnist. Uh, and he just did a great job talking about everything from his growing up in Chicago then uh, going how he wanted to become a sports writer to begin with, his uh, 
following of the Chicago White Sox and Bears and all the rest of the Chicago teams growing up and still to this day um, is, is college time at, uh, at Illinois and then covering the Royals, uh, covering the World Cup, which is his favorite memory. So he touches on that. You might not think longtime baseball writer's favorite memory is covering a 1994 USA World Cup game against Brazil, but he explains uh, why. And then also gets into past Twins baseball, current Twins baseball, uh, touching on Byron Buxton, the situation with that, uh, all the trades at the deadline, the pitching, and uh, the pitching uh, prospects that are on the cusp for the Twins. Uh, what do you think of this current front office? What do you think of Rocco Baldelli? Um, and then a little bit on the Vikings and Gophers and kind of a grab bag of topics uh, at the end. So without further ado, here is that first interview. All right, we are now very pleased to welcome in our first guest on the Marsh and Matt show, Mr. Lavelle E. Neal III. He is the former longtime Minnesota Twins beat writer and a current sports columnist for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Lavelle, thanks so much for joining us. It is a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Uh, we will get right into it. Uh, and we wanted to get the, the story behind our, our guests, kind of how they got to where they are. And for you, that started in Chicago. So we'll start with Baby Lavelle in Chicago. What was it like uh, growing up in the Windy City? Well, um, I, I became a sports fan at a very young age. Um, well, I consider seven to be very young, but I got infatuated with uh, baseball at that age. Um, I just remember one day I was uh, watching a team play in a ballpark that had weeds on the wall and I thought they wore pajamas for uniforms and they were getting clobbered by like the St. Louis Cardinals and I was like I, I could never ever be a Cubs fan you know and then I switched channels and then I'm watching the White Sox play and they had this guy named Dick Allen who played first base for them and he had like these massive arms and he hit like these massive home runs. I just became infatuated with the, with the with the White Sox. So that's how I became a White Sox fan. But then it floated over to the Bulls and it floated over to the Bears and even the Blackhawks too. So I was kind of the provincial Chicago uh, sports fan growing up. And I uh, still so yeah, I still follow the Bears and the Bulls and the Hawks. You know, so um, uh, I just feel like uh, you know that's where I'm from, and it's no reason to to switch sides. Although I run into people in the Twin Cities area who like switch sides, <laughs> which is weird. But um, uh, yeah, and I, I like the fact that I can, I've been able to cover sports and still be a sports fan at the same time. I go to a Bears bar in St. Paul to watch Bears games in the football season, you know, and just knowing that people are irritated by here by people from Chicago, uh, also something else I enjoy. So um that's kind of how it all started, man. And then I didn't realize I wanted to be a – well, I think I always wanted to be a sports writer. I just didn't realize it until um, after I tried to be a marketing major in college, and that didn't go well. And then I uh, changed schools and switched majors and then got on the school newspaper at Illinois Chicago and then got an internship right after college at the Kansas City Star. I ended up working there nine years at the end of that internship. You know, they hired me full time. So that's kind of how I got my, my feet wet in the business. And then eventually to being the Kansas City Royals beat writer, right? Uh, in the, the mid to late 90s? That's correct. Um, I started the Kansas City Star in uh, June of 1989. And I worked my way up covering high school sports, 
uh, short track racing, marathons, triathlons, um, rodeos, uh, did a variety of things. And then we had this, uh, we had this uh, indoor soccer team that was coming to town called the Kansas City Attack. And I volunteered to cover the attack as well as fulfilling my high school beat writer duty. So I basically agreed to have like two beats at the paper. And I, I think in the long run, it helped me because it showed them that I could have, I could cover like a team in addition to just covering high school sports. And uh, I ended up uh, doing a couple stories during the World Cup in 1994. Uh, I got sent out to Palo Alto, California to cover the USA Brazil game, which is still the highlight of my career. And then when I came back that year, uh, I got put on the Royals beat. Of course, that was right when the strike started. <laughs> and so there was no baseball after like uh, September, early September that year. So my first year was like the replacement spring training of 1995. So that was hilarious. It covered six weeks of spring training with replacement players and really getting some neat stories from some of these guys. Because these are just like regular guys, you know, who are playing like town ball level, you know, legion ball out of the game, semi-pro, whatever. You know, there was a, one guy, I'm not going to say his name, but like he was in a biker gang, you know, and and uh, as part as his initiation, he had to ride his motorcycle naked. And of course, he wiped out on the motorcycle while he was trying to be initiated. So that wasn't a pleasant experience for him that day. You know, uh, just crazy <laughs> stories like that. And then um, and then after six weeks of replacement baseball, baseball came to a census and said, there's no way we can do this. And so... Um, they uh, decided to bring back the regular players and the strike or whatever in the lockout. So we had to go back to Florida well, for another like three and a half weeks of spring training. So like, I spent like two and a quarter months in Florida that year. <laughs> you know, I'm not complaining. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> so that's how my uh, ball writing career got started. Yeah. The, the replacement player. And I want to go back to that world cup uh, highlight that you mentioned, but for the replacement players, those weren't just minor league players, right? They weren't even players signed by the the major league affiliate, right? Exactly. Uh, there was a couple. There were some guys who crossed the line. Um, okay. The one guy I remember is uh, Rick Reed, who uh, uh-huh. ended up pitching for the Twins. And yeah. he was a he was uh, he crossed the line and pitched in replacement games. And the union never let him forget it. I mean, even when he was with the Twins, whenever there was a union meeting, he was not allowed in the clubhouse. He had to go sit outside, you know, while the teams were having their meetings. So um, that's how ruthless it was at that time. But uh, there's about a handful of guys that did cross the line to, to, uh, to play. I think Keith Lockhart was another one. Um, and he ended up actually playing for the Royals. He ended up making a reach of the majors playing for the Royals. So um, yeah, that was a crazy time. I, I remember we broke camp, the twins training uh, outside Orlando, Florida in um and uh, it was called Baseball City, which is right outside Kissimmee, right? It's Orlando, the Kissimmee, the Baseball City. And so at the end of the year, we, um, we break camp, and the Royals played an exhibition game against the Braves at Fulton County Stadium. God, that was a terrible ballpark. And it was cold <laughs> that day, too. God, I still remember how cold it was. And we were going to go to Detroit to start the season of replacement ball. So we played the two games. We check out of the hotel and we're sitting on the bus waiting to go to the airport. And all of a sudden the bus isn't leaving. We're just sitting there for like a half an hour, 45 minutes. 
And now we're going to say, okay, guys, there have been some developments here. We're going to need you guys to lay low for a little bit. So we unloaded and we went to the bar and started drinking. And we found out that, you know, owners have decided to end the lockout and bring the major league players back. So, so now we're all scrambling, trying to get stories. I'm trying to get interviews with replacement players about, you know, the, it's ending now. They're about to be major league players. They're about to go to the airport, fly to Detroit and be a major league baseball player. And then they got the rug pulled out from under, you know? Mm. So I um, was trying to get some, some comments and quotes about that. And I give the Royals credit. They're a first class organization. They, um, they actually threw a party for the replacement Royals players that day. They got, they were able to, to reserve like a conference room, a uh, ballroom and brought in some food and brought some music and said, have at it guys. You guys, you know, you guys worked hard and sorry, it's not, you guys, are, it's not going to culminate with you guys actually playing a game, but we just wanted to show you that we appreciate your efforts. And he threw him a party, you know, which I thought was pretty, you know, classy of the world. So uh, yeah, 94 is a crazy year. If you think about that, cause you had the world cup, you had the, the, the lockout, you had the OJ Simpson deal. Uh, that was just a weird year um, in, uh, in, our, in our lifetimes. Not as bad as 2020 by any stretch of the imagination, but in its own right, it was kind of a weird year. And a rough time for your, for your favorite sport as well. But I, the, that Brazil game you said was the highlight of your career, the USA-Brazil game. Uh, you're a big soccer guy as well. Why was that? Uh, why was that the highlight? All these years later. Well, you know, I didn't realize. You know, I think my brother was a bigger soccer fan than I was uh, at the time, and I was starting to kind of get into it a little bit. And covering that indoor soccer team kind of got my juices flowing, so I was trying to follow the sport. And like, just the World Cup just opened my eyes to what the best players in the world in the sport are doing. You know, and now I'm like, okay, what are these guys doing when there's not a World Cup? So now I'm following the English Premier League. And the Spanish League and the Italian League, and I'm finding out where Romario plays or where Bebeto plays or where Roberto Baggio's playing at, you know. And a few American players are kind of trickling over there, you know, because Alexi Lawless is playing at Pavada, and uh, later on Joe Maxmore ended up at Everton, you know. Tab Ramos was playing in Spain somewhere. Um, John Harks, I believe, was playing for Sheffield Wednesday or Sheffield United. Can't remember which one. Kobe Jones is at Coventry. So I'm trying to, I'm starting to kind of follow these guys around and just watching how fans follow the sport. The Brazilian fans were one of a kind. Um, I was, I, the game was played in Palo Alto. So I was staying in San Francisco and the game was played at Stanford University. The Brazilian team was housed in Los Gatos, which is about 45 minutes south of Palo Alto. So I went down there because I'm trying to do stories about World Cup fever, you know, and basically I've learned I learned that Brazilian fans spend three and a half years saving up to go to the World Cup and then they go to the World Cup wherever it is in the world and they immediately start saving up for the next World Cup. That's like their existence. So now they're in Las Gatas. So they're going into liquor stores to get beer. And so they're grabbing six packs out of the fridge and they're popping open the beers and drinking them while they're in the liquor store. And the owner's like, we can't do that. You can't do that. What are you doing? You can't drink in here. But there were so many of them doing it, they couldn't stop. So the guy just gave up, you know. So then at night, they go into these restaurants in Las Gatas. And they bring their drums and they bring their horns and their noisemakers. And they go into these restaurants for dinner and start playing music and dancing. They're dancing on the tables. And the owner's like, stop doing that. You can't dance on the tables here. We can't. You can't. But there were so many of them doing it, they couldn't stop. 
So the police are seeing this and they're like, what can we do? So basically it blocked off all the streets in downtown Las Gatas and just let the Brazilian fans like party up and down the streets uh, holding beers and doing whatever they wanted. And it was just awesome. I'm watching this unfold. It was just uh, uh, just the passion that they had for their sport. And and again, just gave me a really appreciation for how what it meant to a lot of people in the world. So um, with that as a backdrop, I would, you know I covered that game and that USA game was uh, was on July fourth, nineteen ninety four. They lost one to nothing despite having a man advantage for like a lot of the second half. And I'm sitting like next to Bob Ryan of the Boston Globe, who was a known soccer hater at the time. And I'm like, why are you here? You don't like soccer. You know, I decided to come, blah, blah, you know. And the Brazilian media show up to cover the game wearing Brazilian jerseys. I was like, I would never show up at a Twins game wearing a Twins jersey to cover it. You know, that's just unethical. But they didn't care. It's like their national squad. So um, it was just pretty remarkable. And I just remember... I just remember writing my story and leaving and trying to find a place to to uh, watch fireworks. And I got caught in traffic, and everybody just said "screw it." And we all got out of our cars and left our car sitting in the middle of the street. And we walked over to a bluff and watched fireworks. You know, and I remember there was a couple in front of me in a BMW, and their names were Matthew and Zoe, and they were like from the University of Michigan, but they had moved to Silicon Valley. So I'm sitting, I'm standing behind them on this bluff. And they're lighting up marijuana joints, and I'm getting like a secondhand contact off, off these guys, off this couple because they're smoking like three joints during the fireworks show. And that was my Fourth of July in 1994. Wow, <laughs> that that's just incredible. Yep, yep. Do you, I'll never forget it. Do you think U.S. soccer? I mean, you talked about the players. We didn't have a, a lot at the time. Do you think that? it's the the fandom has advanced i mean you've seen the loons and sort of the excitement there do you feel a palpable difference as a soccer fan now compared to 1994 yeah definitely uh, i think it's growing i think mls has helped a lot and there's a definite a fan base i will say this the twin cities market's weird okay because there are a lot of soccer fans here but there's a lot of expatriates who live here. There are a lot of people from other countries who live in the Twin Cities, more than you think. And they're soccer snobs. And they hate MLS. But because of television now, they can watch the EPL. They go watch La Liga. They go watch the French League. They go watch the Bundesliga. They fill up Brits and the local on weekends to watch their native teams and could give less than a crap about MLS. But there is a small band of people who will fill Allianz Arena every week to watch the Loons. We have like two, we have like two soccer groups in this town, which is weird. It's like the MLS Loons fans who are probably also international soccer fans. But then you have this group of international fans who give less than two bleeps about, about MLS. You know, so but I, I've seen it grown and the talent level has definitely gotten better. Um, we have more players playing in Europe and in, in big leagues than ever. You know, you got Weston McKinney at Javantes. We got Polistic at Chelsea. We got Gio Reyna at Borussia Dortmund. We got Sergino Dest and Conrad De La Fuente at Barcelona, for Christ's sakes. You know, we got guys playing a big and I I keep being told that the next group of teenagers, like the next group of like 15, 16, 17, 18 year olds are better or just as good or better than a group that has started to leak over into 
Europe now. So uh, USA soccer is on the rise, man. And uh, they're at a position where they can make the, make things interesting the next World Cup or two. It's going to be fascinating to see and exciting. Uh, switching gears, you know, so you were in Kansas City. What brought you to Minnesota and what was that transition uh, like for you? It was just like the career path. You know, I was covering the Royals for, I covered the Royals for, uh, from 95, 96, for three years. And I was sharing a beat with a guy named Dick Cagle, who was a veteran scribe, longtime writer for the Kansas City Star. Um, so I wasn't going on all the road trips. I kind of wanted to have a beat of my own. And the other thing, too, is Kansas City is a neat town. It's easy to get around, great cost of living, you know, but all they had was the Royals and the, and the Chiefs. No NBA team, no hockey team, you know, and the, the Wizards, as they were called, were just getting started at MLS. Um, so I was kind of looking, you know, for opportunity where I could get in a little bit bigger market and possibly get close to home. And so the, the Minnesota job came up and, uh, you know, I interviewed for it and I got it. And I, you know, I went to the University of Illinois for two years. And so I'm still a Big Ten fan. So I was back in the Big Ten state with all four major sports. Uh, cost of living is a little, cost of living is a little high. I got my first check at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. I went in and asked for a raise. After I saw how much you were taking out for taxes. <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I got comfortable here. I thought that maybe I would move from Minneapolis to a larger market, maybe Chicago. But I got comfortable here. I met a bunch of great friends. And, uh, and I really liked it here. So I decided to kind of, you know, make a career here. So and I'm, I have not regretted that one bit. And I got to ask, as a Chicago White Sox fan what is it like covering a market with all your rival sports I mean how do you how do you balance that uh you know natural fandom that you have from growing up with uh you know the passionate fans we have here in the Twin Cities um it is quality entertainment for me uh because some of these Minnesota sports teams cannot get out of their own way the Wolves have made one the playoffs once in like 15, 16 years. And, you know, they got busted for the Joe Smith deal. Um, the Wilds signed Suter and Parisi, and it's not enough for them to even get to a Stanley Cup. I think they got to a conference finals once, and that was before Suter and Parisi, actually. So uh, mm-hmm. that move didn't work. The Vikings, every time you think the Vikings are going to have a great year or finally get it done, someone gets injured or someone gets arrested or there's a bounty put on Brett Favre's head. You know, and, and they it, so or a kicker you know, misses something. Yeah, exactly. A, a yeah. couple times, a couple <laughs> times. So being a Chicago guy, being able to watch this unfold and watch people just wallow in self pity and shame and grief, it's quality entertainment. <laughs> I, I'm not going to any more Vikings playoff games because I was at the Gary Anderson one as an eight-year-old, and then as was I uh, in in my twenties at the Blair Walsh one. So no yeah. kidding. I, I won't. I just shouldn't go for the good of the state and uh, the good of the team. <laughs> but I, but I just go ahead. I just remember I was in a uh, I was in a cigar lounge that Seattle game. And he's lining up for the kick. And I'm sitting there going, there's no way he's going to miss this, right, guys? <laughs> I, mean, oh. I sat there like five seconds before he, he had made three difficult ones <laughs> in really tough conditions. 
I, I was in a bar in Washington, D.C. that was a Seattle uh, bar. And I was the only one in a Vikings jersey. And I turned to my good friend who's a, uh, you know, a Seahawks fan. And I said, watch, he's going to miss it. That was my jaded Minnesota Vikings fandom, oh, you know, coming through. Oh, you're right. I mean, we're at that point now where people, the Minnesota sports fans expect the worst. Yeah. You know, um, they don't, it, it, they think about the worst possible outcome and they grab onto it and let that control their emotions. And, yeah. you know, uh, and when, and when it starts to come true, they just go bananas. Like the twins this year, the twins have been a, an incredible disappointment that people are whining about the twins and it's like same old twins. They never produce any prospects. They never spend for anything. Uh, they're going to screw this up. They have a bunch of pitch to contact pitchers. Uh, and they start throwing out all the, all the false cliches that have been built up right. through the years, you know, about how that team can't get it done. That's, that's twins baseball. <laughs> I, I want to, yeah, and I want to touch on current twins baseball in a sec, but, I wanted to go back to kind of a sad and then happy season for the twins. And that was 2002, one of your first, uh, as, as the beat writer, their first playoff team as the beat writer, but you had to think for a time there, there was a good chance they were going to get contracted. And then they go on and beat the money ball A's in that playoff series and come three wins away from the world series. That had to be a, a whirlwind of a season. That was a crazy year in that the whole period leading up to, uh, to 20, 2002, you know, forget they named Guardy manager uh, during that time, mm -hmm. and um, you know, I mean, I remember at Guardy's press conference where we're still talking about contraction, and, you know, and finally I just got fed up with it, you know, because the the team was going to play, they're not going anywhere, you know. I was like, Guardy, what's your lineup for next year? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and Guardy goes, "Well, I'm batting Jack Jones lead off." We're like, "What? <laughs> Jack Jones going to lead off?" You know. And next thing you know, he like sets a record for most lead overs in the season, you know, and it, it just went from there. If you remember, uh, Gary's first game was in Kansas City and Jock hit the second pitch of the game out of the park. Uh, and that just kind of fueled the whole season, man. So it was just quality entertainment um, and just a great year for a team that had been tormented, a team that, that was like 63, 97 and one, I believe in 1999. They had used 18 rookies. In both like 99 and 2000, you know, so they, they went rock bottom. I mean, they scorched their own earth and, you know, everybody talks about uh, the Houston Astros doing it, you know, cause the Houston Astros were so bad that they had like zero ratings at times. Um, but everybody forgets that the twins pretty much uh, went to rock bottom too, rock bottom baseball. They caught up all the young guys. You know what? They all panned out. Uh, Torrey Hunter, Jack Jones, uh aj brzezinski Corey koski it worked out you know and uh and it, not only they had they also had great makeup it was just strong-willed guys who you know were determined to win and that started the run in the 2000s in which the twins won six division titles yeah that was a it was a fun time just growing up that i was in middle school for that 2002 team so they were good pretty much you know from that point on through when i was in college and uh always always competitive uh switching to this to this current uh, regime because you went from the very much old school regime of of terry ryan people were saying they didn't use analytics enough to now they they use analytics maybe more 
you know, just as much as any team in, in baseball. Do they, Absolutely. do they, in your mind, rely, because, because one thing that's, that's bugged me a little bit is at least as far as the past couple of years, and I think you saw it in the playoffs last year, you've seen it this year, is they have a, a, a plan heading into a game and they rarely divert from that plan, especially when it comes to the pitchers. I think you saw Barrios in game two against Houston last year. He's rolling along, pitching maybe the game of his life and they pull him. Are they too reliant on, on analytics in your mind and not enough of the human component? Uh, I like analytics a lot for player development. I don't know how much I like it for game management. And, you know, they fall in line with that, the group of people who, you know, second time through the order, oh, oh, no, we can't let a guy pitch a third time through the order. Well, sometimes you got to, you know. Yeah. Um, I thought that um, the first playoff series, I guess the Yankees. Jake Odorizzi has to start one of those two games. There's no way you put – was it Randy Dobnak in game Randy, two? In Randy game? Dobnak game two. After there's they're no down, you, nothing. Yeah. There's no way you start Dobnak in, in, in New York in game two. You don't. Um, and then uh, Rocco uh, – Odorizzi starts game three at Target Field, and he's pulled immediately like after two times through the order. Right. And so – I. I like Rocco a lot. I like how he deals with human beings. I like his personality. I think he's a neat guy. I think he's a smart baseball guy. But I hope that he evolves in terms of how he handles pitchers to be comfortable with using his gut as much as he uses stats and yeah. analytics. I hope yes. he gets to that point in his career. So, Because I, I just think they're a little too rigid sometimes with how they uh, go about doing their business as far as uh, usage of the bullpen, um, how long your less starters go, and, and, and stuff like that. So, um, so and I'm curious, you know, to see how Wes Johnson's going to work with some of these uh, these young guys. They got a lot of young starting pitchers that are going to come up here in the next two years. You got a guy named in Joe Ryan, who's a fastball intensive guy who likes to attack and attack and attack. Is Wes Johnson going to start telling him to spin the ball more? You know. In Major League Baseball, we don't throw as many fastballs anymore. We we pitch backwards. But yeah. that's not Ryan's style. So I want to see how Wes deals with that. So, And I like Wes, too. I think he's a very sharp guy, too. But like I said, uh, it's, dangerous. it's dangerous being too rigid, I think, sometimes. And I think that's gotten the Twins in trouble, especially with games of management. For player you, development, you, okay. yeah. you You mentioned uh, Joe Ryan. It's interesting. I saw him so much in Fort Myers in 2019. And I've talked to several guys from that 2019 miracle team who said he has the best fastball they have faced during their time as professionals. So, and, he, and, and some of these guys are in the big leagues now. So and he, he's, he's, he's not, got a real it's good not, fastball. It's not like a 96, 97 mile fastball. Yeah. It's like 93, right. but he's got, it, it's got funky movement on it. You know, I, and he, it allows him to pitch up in the zone. And he's got that mentality too, that he's going to attack. And so I, it serves him well, and he's had success with it. I hope he does not give up on it. Even if he gets in a little bit, he should stick with he should stick with it and and see how it goes in the long run. But uh, yeah, it's good to hear. I've heard some of the same things. I just heard that uh, he throws a lot of fastballs, and that uh, he um, he's got great makeup, great makeup. Yeah, and uh, I want to see that in play. He does, and another guy who does is uh, is Jordan Belazovic. I think he's got a great fastball as well. He's 
he's starting to put things together. I was at a start of his in Wichita a few weeks back where he looked like he could step into a big league rotation. So I watched him throw in spring training of 2019. And I was like, that fastball has got movement and he throws mm -hmm. like 95 and he's yeah. got some great downward action on that fastball that I think will play in the major leagues. And he was doing really well at Wichita there, but I think he stumbled here his last three starts. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and double, double is double is tough. That's his first run through double a and uh, you, uh, yeah. so, so did but you see, good. so you've seen uh, Josh Winder and Cole Sands. Winder. No Sands. Yes. Uh, Sands. We saw at the end of uh, 2019 with Fort Myers. And it, it's interesting if they had had a playoffs that year, uh, it was canceled due to a hurricane that actually never hit. <laughs> you can go oh, I remember that all, all day. Yeah, Hurricane Dorian was supposed to hit Dent, and we were going for two straight championships. Uh, Toby Gardenhire, I think, is still a little bitter that he didn't get a chance at, at a ring there. But but we did see Cole Sands, and he's got a he's got a great curveball, um, very very good curveball, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see to see him because he he throws like 95, 96. Was a great pitcher at Florida State. Um, and, uh, I think he's just one of many. And, uh, there was, there was a story I saw a few weeks ago where they said, um, some, you know, a twins guy was quoted as saying, you got to have like 10 guys and hope three of them hit. And I think they're starting to develop that, that 10. So. Yeah. I think one, I think one of the things they screwed up this year was, um, first of all, their pitcher decisions, um, especially shoemaker and Jay Happ, which did not work, but, you're going to need eight or nine starters to get through a season at least. I didn't like who they had as plan B after this, their top five guys. You know, I think they were relying on Smelter, Lewis Thorpe, and Dobnak. And I'm like, that's a little dangerous, you know, uh, because Duran, and maybe they thought Duran and Balazovich were going to be factors late in the season. Of course, both those guys ended up being kind of banged up this year and get off to late starts. But uh, I think they realized their errors. And now they've got about what six, seven guys who could all conceivably make their major league debut next year. You know, yeah. anyone's a double any, they got a bunch of guys to triple on now. You got, uh, you got Sands and, um, and um, the other Winder. kid from uh, Winder. Well, Winder got promoted to triple A. Yeah. Didn't he? And yeah, then uh, you, got the, you got the picture they got uh, Simeon Woods Richardson who's at double A, I believe. And you've got all those other guys, including Balazovich and Yon Duran and Winder. So you're going to have youthful options with upside to break it in a rotation next year. Now, I don't want the Twins to sit on her and say, we're going to wait for these guys to come up and they're going to be good. They, see that they still need to go out and invest in high-impact pitching yep. to, to go with Ketamata because they traded Jose Barrios away. And after Maeda, that, that rotation looks terrible. So, you know, they've got to go out and offer a guy maybe $17, $18 million a year to run what made at the front of that rotation and then hope that the other guys come through as the season goes along. They, it they feels try. like they haven't had a real number one pitcher since Johan. Yeah, that's probably right. They That's tried with right. Wheeler. They tried with, speaking of invest, they tried with Wheeler, uh, but then Philly offered about 20 million more and uh, he's from around there. Or his wife is. Uh, yeah, he's but, crushing uh, it. He's crushing it this year too. Oh, he is. He, he is. is. Yeah, the, and they, the, do they offered a hundred million to you Darvish too. Yeah. Yeah. Which wow. 
I didn't Who know knows that if that would have been good or bad, but uh, re-signing Buxton though, that's going to be, that's my last question on the twins for now. Uh, that's going to be the big question of the off season. I think um, they tried to do it. You had some, uh, you had some strong opinions that that was a, a low ball offer um, for, for Buxton. If they do it, uh, could it, well, it could hamper them if he's, if he's injured all the time, but in your mind, do they, do they have to try to keep him here? I think it's imperative that they keep Buxton. Um, he, first of all, he wants to stay. He wants to stay more than Barrios did. They traded Barrios out of necessity because Jose was, was dead set on going into free agency and trying to max out uh, his, uh, his value. Buxton's willing to stay here. And my sources told me that they thought they were close to signing him in spring training. But the agent jumped in at the last second and kind of nixed everything. So he's been kind of an impediment to a deal here. Um, but uh, the dude works hard. When he's healthy, he's one of the maybe a top 15 player in the game, maybe. Um, he's a 10 war player. You know, um, to me, if you offer him a $15 million a year base with incentives that can make him help him make 20, get to 20, I don't see why that, that can't be a doable number. Um, yes, it's a little bit of a risk on the Twins part, but if, uh, if he stays healthy, has a 10 war season, that's a $30 million contract. So yeah, I look at it from both ends here. So I hope they revisit the Buxton situation. I think it'll be even worse than trading Barrios if they end up moving Buxton during the offseason. So you're a hall of fame voter, uh, for MLB, correct? So I, I'm very curious, sort of a two-part question. How do you approach what's your process when evaluating people for the hall of fame and then the follow-up question is what do you think is going to happen with joe mauer i think he's just an interesting case study um for the hall of fame now well you know i get this ballot here's 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 a recent hall of fame ballot here you know that i filled out what year was this 2021 so um I look at uh, there's some guys that are no brainers, you know, on this, on this ballot, you know, uh, Billy Wagner, I thought it was a hall of famer, Scott Rowland, one of the best third basemen ever. All right. I did, you know, I went against my principles. I did give uh Torrey Hunter a Memorial vote, which he'll never get that. again. He'll never get that again. I just wanted to just give him one so he could stay on the ballot for a year. Um, I do believe that everybody was cheating up until 2008, wherever it was. So I do vote for Bonds and Clemens. Um, other guys, I got to crunch numbers. I had to, you know, I had to crunch numbers on Aaron Jones, numbers on a little bit of numbers on Schilling, although I was kind of leaning that way. Numbers on Hel- Todd Helton, you know, because the whole Colorado factor. Um, I may be a little biased, but I thought that Gary Sheffield's like one of the feared sluggers in baseball during his time, you know. Um, uh, Jay Jaffe does a terrific job during the Hall of Fame voting period. And he does, uh, he does these deep dives into whether a guy deserves to be in the Hall of Fame or not and uses like their, their, their numbers during their peak year, uh, war, and all that stuff. Uh, he's got a stat called the Hall of, Hall of Fame Monitor that, you know, I think it, anything over 100, you should be in the Hall of Fame. Anything under 100, you're not in, you know. So it's kind of, a, I use that as a guide as well. But for the most part, I, you know, like Mike Trout, okay, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame, you know. Uh, Miguel Cabrera, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame. 
No, then you, you, but you gotta. You know, it's just some. There's a lot of borderline guys. Um, I sincerely believe that Joe Maurer will go into Hall of Fame. Uh, his ten years as, as a catcher were legendary. The first catcher to win the bat, he won three batting titles as a catcher. He won an MVP as a catcher. Um, his uh, career somewhat tainted by his five years as a catcher, as a first baseman. But I've talked to a bunch of national guys about this, and they're all voting for Maurer because I thought he was a Hall of Famer as a catcher. Um, I don't think he's going to be a first ballot guy, but I think he's going to get in. It's going to be it's going to be a fascinating case study. Um, the other thing too is, if you're a likable guy, you you get votes. You know, Kirby Puckett's numbers to to go you know, to to compare him for Hall of Fame. It doesn't, they really don't stand up against guys who are already in the Hall of Fame. But everybody loved Puck, and they felt his career was cut short because of glaucoma. And so he got, I don't want to say sympathy votes, but he got, you know, he got, uh, he got uh, uh, votes from people who really liked the guy. And that's going to happen with Joe Maher, guaranteed. So I don't think, I don't know if he gets it in the first ballot, but I think he's going to eventually get it. I, I agree with you on that. Uh, we're going to end the with right. uh, uh, a little lightning round here. Quick questions, quick answers. Uh, first one, how many games do the Vikings win this season? Uh, I see a path to 10 or 11 wins. I think their defense is going to be much better than a year ago. Zimmer is not going to let their defense stink for two straight years. All right. Who will be the Vikings starting QB in the 2022 season opener? I still think it's going to be Kirk Cousins. I think he gets knocked in the city. He's kind of like the Joe Maher of football. Uh, he can't <laughs> do anything right. Uh, but he is incredibly talented. And um, they're not going to win with Kellen Mon right now. If he won two Super Bowls, they'd be complaining he hasn't won three, I think. Uh, Correct. With Kirk Cousins. <laughs> also true. <laughs> Will. Right, uh, no, go ahead. What, what do you think the biggest Minnesota sports story of this year is going to be? I think it just happened. I think SUNY leave winning gold at the at the at the uh, Tokyo Olympics. Um, after Simone Biles unfortunately had to uh, step away because she was having t- the twisty problem. Uh, it's going to be one of the stories of the year. She, she's in already. She's probably going to be the Minnesota Sports Person of the Year for for sure, and she may end up being USA Sports Person of the Year. Next lightning round question: Will the Vikings regret not trading up for Justin Fields? No, they won't because it would have been more of a headache than uh, than, than drafting Mon because uh, as a first-round pick, there's always pressure to play that guy right away, and it just would have been a bigger controversy with Kirk Cousins all year long, um, and um, it, it just w- it wasn't worth it, especially when they need offensive line help. And maybe, uh, although their first-round pick in Christian Derisaw, <laughs> we only know if it's going to work out or not because he can't even get on the field. Yeah, yeah, I, I think – if they had drafted Fields, Cousins might have been out before before game one. I mean, they, they might have needed to try to trade him immediately. You mean uh, you mean you mean trade him to like San Francisco or something? Something because can you can you imagine the drama uh, if if Fields came in here and the pressure uh, with him wanting with him uh, trying to get on the field for week one that that wouldn't have been good. Uh, people are already going bananas over over uh, Kellamon being here, so it would have been even worse mm-hmm. if, he, if Fields was with the Vikings. No, no doubt about it. We have to ask uh, on the eve of the uh, NFL season here in a few weeks, uh, Super Bowl prediction for this year. Oh, oh my God! Um, 
Wow. Okay. I haven't thought about that one. Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Seattle out of the NFC. And they're going to play. Uh, they're going to play the Chiefs. Something's okay. going to happen in Tampa Bay, and the Buccaneers are not going to make it. So, I'm 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 taking. You're Seattle. doubting now, Tom Brady. That's, I am. I know wow. that's suicide. Now, I will say this because historically, the team that loses a Super Bowl normally craps out the next couple of years. But uh, the $50 million man in Pat Mahomes, I think, is going to get it done. And last one, uh, we uh, touched on the Vikings. What do you expect wins uh, for the Row the Boat crew uh, this fall? Uh, I got to see their schedule. Um, I was at practice the other day. The offensive line and the defensive line are legitimate. I am concerned about the passing game because I don't know who Tanner Morgan is going to throw to. They're already talking about how they're trying to round out uh, Mo Ibrahim's game by making him line up in the slot and maybe run some routes. They're doing it out of necessity, you know, because they don't know what they got after Ottman Bell. They got some promising kids, but they're young. Um, and I, I didn't see one pass to a tight end yesterday in practice when I was there, so – um, I'm a little concerned about the passing offense. And if that if they can't throw the ball a little bit, teams are gonna just key uh Ibrahim. Uh so I'm going six and six. Wow. That means a bowl, that means a bowl game, though. I guess it doesn't does. it? Yeah, it yeah. Does. Just barely. And uh I, I've got one last one myself. I, I saw a very good uh very good piece today on ESPN uh about if you were major league commissioner for a day. What's what's one change uh, you would make? And we had some some interesting answers. Curious to hear yours. I would make pitchers stay on the rubber. I make batters stay in a batter's box, and speed up the game that way. I've sat in the press box this year, and I've watched Hansel Robles, no one on base, take twenty three seconds in between pitches. Okay, that's ridiculous. Both the hitter and the pitcher are stepping out of their areas in between each pitch to adjust themselves, to wipe sweat off their brow, to think and gather themselves. You know, that's why I like Bailey Ober so much, because he throws. He works fast. Yep. Um, they want, they want All the stuff they're doing to try to speed up games, it starts with the individuals. 100% agree. And I saw the pitch clock in the Florida State League at first as an old-school guy. didn't love it. But then uh, after, they, after they did a little grace period – couple weeks were rough when they started implementing it. Then you didn't even notice it, and uh, it really helped the game. So I think everything else is kind of around the edges. So those, those two things, pitchers on the mound, hitters in the box, it's going to keep the game flowing. We got problems. I support we it. A, we have problems. We have a 2-1 game that takes over three hours. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lavelle, thanks so much uh, for the time. Very generous of you to, uh, to join us here, and I look forward to talking again down the line. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Lavelle. Wow, what a uh, fantastic first conversation that was. Thank you again to Lavelle E. Neal III uh, for joining us. Boy, he's a plethora of knowledge and uh, and stories, isn't he? I, I was just so impressed. Not only we, we knew he was a great baseball mind, uh, but hearing him dissect uh, U.S. soccer 
and his stories and experiences during the the strike. I mean, it really uh, was impressive um, and fun to hear all of uh, his experiences and how he got to uh, his current uh, column. Yeah, he's really an elite sports mind. Uh, he knows everything, and uh, he's an elite cigar mind. <laughs> he has a wide range of interests, and uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to that. Wanted to touch on a couple of things, uh, Twins and Vikings uh, related, and uh, we're recording this before the second Vikings preseason game uh, against the Indianapolis Colts coming up this weekend. It may air before, it may air slightly after that, so just as a, uh, as a reference point for you all listening out there. Um, but first, on, on the Twins, he, he brought up an interesting point about Buxton. And I got what he was what he was saying. I didn't really get to, um, you know, give my counter opinion on that. But I think there needs to be more made of what the risk would be, because he has played since 2018 in just over 30 percent of the Twins games. And that that's just an extremely low number Um, and and really unacceptable number if you're talking about signing a guy long term now have all the injuries been his fault no he's run into some terrible luck you know he just came back this year from his latest injury and then got hit in the hand uh, by an upper 90s fastball so I'm not saying by any means that it's all Byron's fault I think early in his career um, he, he ran into some walls unnecessarily dove for some balls and in lopsided games unnecessarily, but it's also tough to take the aggression out of such an exciting and, and talented player. So it's always a balancing act. My thing though would be if you do sign him and he ends up playing again in about 30% of the games, um, it could be a dicey situation for the twins because they're not a team that now has their payroll increased since moving out of the dome. Yes. They're now more in the middle of the pack than the bottom of the pack, but still even a team like that, there's only, four or five teams in all of baseball that can sign a guy regret it because of an injury or poor performance, and then make up for it with another big signing. If you're signing Byron Buxton, you're kind of putting your eggs into that Buxton basket, especially with Barrios gone now. So I do think that will factor into the twins decision. And, and that's kind of why Lavelle thinks it was a low ball offer the, the first one. And I can see why, because he's so talented, but, uh, but again, that, that injury concern, is is no joke and uh availability is definitely something to consider the injury concern is real you laid out the numbers if you let him walk you have to be comfortable with the idea that you are allowing a potential mvp to walk maybe he's never going to win an mvp you know because he's never healthy or maybe he's never going to win an mvp because mike trout's in the league uh, and you might not ever be able to top him. But he's shown flashes this year that shows he is a potential MVP. And I think where why I ultimately side with Lavelle in trying to re-sign him is you re-signed Sano. You re-signed Kepler. I know it's not the same type of, of dough, but you've, you you've have been willing to put up some money with players that didn't have injury risks, but clearly had other risks associated with them that haven't panned out. You signed Donaldson. Um, now, obviously, you'd won an MVP, and you know, but he had injury issues. And at some point, you know, you have to decide 
you have the, the twins always want to mix that veteran presence with the young guys and hope that that all clicks at the right time. And that's their recipe for success. Um, but I, we, you know, he talked about those early 2000 teams and one of the keys was great defense uh, and great situational hitting and put aside the injury concerns or the running into the walls. I mean, there's no one who is more important to the team from a defensive standpoint and from a situational hitting standpoint, uh, now that Nelson Cruz is gone than Buxton. And so that's why I think you, you, you have to resign him otherwise. Um, and Polanco is also in that situational hitting conversation too, I'd say, but beyond that, I think you really, the, the energy gets sucked out of the team. If you lose Barrios, you lose Cruz and you lose Buxton. And I don't see that, that team then competing for quite a long time. If you, if you allow, if you trade them away. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, I think that's fair. I hope they do uh, resign them, but, um, but again, that pipeline has to also, I think another key is, if you re-sign him with the idea that he's going to be the centerpiece, you're going to build around him. That's a little bit too presumptuous as well because of the injuries. Um, it, it, I, you know, I could just see being his teammate and, and he's the leader of the team, but he's not there the vast majority of the time. I mean, I'm talking not even there on road trips. He's not there. He's, he's rehabbing or he might be down in Fort Myers rehab, you know? So I think it is important. And if he does find a way to stay on the field, a hundred plus, you know, 120, 130 games, that's great. He's played over a hundred games one time, by the way, in his career, one time. So I'm not going to be holding my breath on that. I'm almost going to be saying we're expecting him to play half the games and the twins aren't going to say this, but internally they're going to have to have these types of conversations. We're going to expect him to play half the games and he's worth it because he's so good in those games, but we have to have, you know, that extra, that fourth outfielder suddenly becomes really, really important for the Minnesota twins. So does keeping that pipeline developing. So this Austin Martin, they got for, for Barrios, he needs to be a big time player. Royce Lewis coming back from injury last year. We've seen what Kirilov and Larnick can do, getting a little taste of how good they can be. So they do have players. And I think uh, from a position player standpoint, they've proven they can develop. Now will come the pitching, which was Derek Falvey's big selling point when he came to the Twins, coming from Cleveland, remember, where he developed that pipeline of pitching. He was, you know, a big guy responsible for that. Can he do that in Minnesota? I think COVID kind of delayed answering that question because you would have some of these guys in the big leagues right now, but like Lavelle mentioned, the Belazovics, the, the, the Cole Sands, the Johan Durans, um, Woods, Woods Richardson, Joe Ryan, Joe, I was shocked that the, that the Rays gave Joe Ryan to the twins shocked because kind of like I was saying with, with Lavelle, he has one of the best fastballs many guys that I've talked to have seen. And, and these are guys who are in double-A, triple-A and the big leagues right now. And it's not because of velocity. It's because of high carry. It's because of inception. And he's so aggressive. So it will be interesting to see if Wes Johnson is back next year, which I do think is an open question because there are going to be some changes you would have to think. Um, 
how is he going to develop a guy like like a Joe Ryan? Drew Strotman, the other guy they got from the Rays, is also talented. So uh, we'll see on that. Uh, but transitioning to to the Minnesota Vikings, and we touched on it a little bit with Lavelle. He saw them as a 10-11 win team. I agree. Uh, I I was uh, having having breakfast with you, Matt, uh, a few days ago, and uh, we got into a heated argument about uh, about uh, Kirk Cousins a little bit, but a regular Mike Zimmer, a regular a regular occurrence for us. Yeah, regular add. breakfast yeah. as the rest of the restaurant clears out as our volume picks up. <laughs> <laughs> and intensity picks up, but no, I, I think, um, I think it's an 11 win team minimum. This is of course, assuming health, but I, I think it's an 11 win team minimum. Keep in mind that extra game. So not 11 and five, but 11 and six, uh, minimum. I think the talent is too great on this team, but I, I the one thing I am concerned about is, um, that offensive line because they let Riley reef go, who was good last year for them. And then, replaced him with Derisaw, who has not been on the field much, much yet as of this, this recording. So uh, Rashad Hill, good fill-in, but not for a full season. Right guard, Oliudo has, has seemed to take a hold of that job, but when does Wyatt Davis come in? So I think that's the big question with that O-line. When do the rookies step in? How do they play? And uh, that gets them to the 10, 11 wins that Lavelle was talking about. What do you think? Yeah, I, they are a better team on paper than last year. And so it's, I think uh, that jumping to that 10, 11 wins, it seems reasonable. The defense will be better. Uh, it, it, this is going to be a Zimmer coach team. The offense seems you know, the offensive line really can't get worse than it was. I don't think, I don't, as you know, I don't think that the reef loss is, is really that big of one. Um, I, I think Rudolph, you lose the leadership, but from an offensive playmaking perspective, it just um, wasn't there as much anymore. You know, I, I don't want to read too much into the first preseason game, especially without the first team playing. But there's and just much some... of the, and much of the second team, <laughs> thirty-one players not playing. Yeah, there's still something to me about this team that is underwhelming. I I, I can't explain what it is. I, it just it feels like you know there have been these reports. I think it, maybe it was Courtney Cronin or someone talked about how the Vikings have historically uh, under Zimmer had a better injury track record than a lot of teams had. And, you know, and, and, you know, Daniil Hunter and Barr last year that, you know, we did, we did see it last year. Um, and we've seen it with Dalvin some, but it just, it, it feels like this jump up to 10, 11 uh, wins is really tenuous. And if you pull out one, um, you know, one portion of the Jenga tower, it could um, all come crashing down. And so are they better? Yes. Could they get to 10 to 11 wins? Yes. And I hope they do. And I think the NFC is more wide open. I think a lot of these teams that are being touted um, really aren't that much better than they were previously. I don't think Arizona is that much better. I don't buy the, the Matt Stafford, you know, improvement for LA very much. You know, San Francisco, I, I don't see them as being that much better. 
There was still the dynamics with Green Bay and Seattle in the offseason. Uh, the Saints are worse without Drew Brees. So I think there, there's an opening there. Uh, but it, I, I'm kind of in, you know, prove it mode with these Vikings that all the veterans they signed are not there's a reason other teams maybe let them go. Are they washed up? Are they not going to be as good as we think they are? And is it all going to come together in particular on the offensive line? Um, Cause if Kirk isn't protected, I don't think we can take that next step forward. So uh, with all that, I, I view them more as a nine win team, uh, maybe a 10 win 11 seems too much of a reach to me, given everything that has to go right with this team. Oh, and I'm on 11 minimum. So here we go. (laughs) Um, Like like we said at the beginning, I'm here to take your unrealistic expectations and knock them down. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I still, it's really enough where I'm still uh, liking this team. I think the other area would be secondary uh, because you saw that area really concerned uh, us last year where they were relying on rookies. Some of those players got hurt and uh, you were, you were seriously putting players out on the field that didn't belong in an NFL field, let alone backups like Chris Jones, when he olayed against that Dallas running back who scored. Remember they won seven last, they were seven and nine last year. They were one game away from the playoffs and the bears snuck in at eight and eight. Um, So for as bad as last year, that's what I, I really, I'm a Zimmer fan to, to win seven games with that lackluster defense, with that roster uh, that, that took some coaching. And I think in some ways he did some of his best work uh, last year, somehow competing, uh, especially late in the season with a real sub really substandard um, defense. So I think there's no happier guy than Zim to get the not just the veterans back and the veterans, I think we'll see Patrick Peterson, I think could get new life with Zimmer, but he's definitely on the back end. No question about that. Uh, Bashad Breland has had kind of an average career to the, to this point. And um, it's disappointing that he at this point would be starting Cam Dantzler. Uh, Cam Dantzler should be starting by this point. It hurts to lose Jeff Gladney. Obviously they had to, to release him due to the, the horrible legal situation that he got himself into. So uh, Mac Alexander coming back. Zimmer has had some good things to say about him in the slot. So um, I think it could be a good group. Um, Xavier Woods has had an excellent camp uh, at safety next to Harrison. Um, and Harry the Hitman will do what he does. Uh, he's he's uh, your Notre Dame boy. And uh, now I'm now I'm a fan as well. He's always reliable. He, he will always he is, uh, get the job done. I think he, he would be the one guy where other teams are saying, where is he when they're, when they're game planning. And it's really tough to pick like a, that, that that's the last thing I'll ask you. Who's the most important player on the, on the Vikings defense, because you can make a case when Linval was here, you could, could have made a case for him. So like, is it a Michael Pierce or Dalvin Tomlinson who should really help the Vikings run defense, which struggled? Is it a Daniil Hunter who I would say, I would say Daniil might be the best player on the whole team. Like if you're doing Madden rankings, he might be number one uh, fastest ever to 50 sacks based on his age. Um, certainly Barr and Ken Kendricks, you could make it a really good argument for Kendricks, but it might be Harrison Smith when it's all said and done, the guy in the back end. 
I, I, you know, Kendricks is phenomenal. I love my boy Harrison Smith, but I think we even saw last year. Um, if you don't get pressure on a quarterback, those guys can be as good as can be. And eventually you get exposed, you get gassed, you can't cover everyone else on the field. So you can't tackle everyone on the field on every single play. So if the play, if they're scheming correctly and they're moving away from Kendricks and they're moving away from Harrison Smith and they've got all the time in the world, um, look, we see with Kirk Cousins, he, you know, when he has all the time in the world, he, he will tear defenses apart. And so for me, it's if he comes back healthy and he gets any kind of pressure on the opposing QB and having Tomlinson uh, and having other folks on the D line to really, you know, take some of the pressure off of him. It makes Kendricks and Smith better. It allows them to go and do what they do best. So for me, it's Daniel Hunter. Yeah, it's hard to but, disagree. It's hard to disagree. The, the other two X factors, like I think that we can't forget is special teams. Um, yeah. it, it was a place that was, we were terrible last year. And, you know, Zimmer's had a, uh, a quick trigger uh, in replacing kickers. And, you know, so we're hopeful that Greg Joseph will be good. Uh, we obviously have a lot of pain liking around the kicking position, but there were a lot of close games that we couldn't, we couldn't win. Um, and that comes down to special teams. And so I, I think having better play from the special teams and a little cert more certainty there is going to be critical if they're going to get to that 10, 11 win season uh, that we were talking about. And, and, and then the other one to come full circle is uh, offensive line, but how does Clint Kubiak transition to being the offensive coordinator? Offensive identity, very similar. Is it different? Uh, how predictable is it? Uh, but to me, it's that offensive line, the special teams, Clint Kubiak, and then sort of, as you were talking about with the, the, the new pieces or returning pieces on defense and whether that improves it enough. Um, I think those are the factors that are really going to determine success. Yeah, that last point you made about uh, Clint Kubiak is interesting because Zimmer is the defensive play caller, but you have a new offensive play caller. And, and yeah, it was, it was Clint's dad, Gary. Uh, who's been, I think, involved in seven Super Bowls, multi-time Super Bowl champion. Just um, incredible. Track record is incredible. Uh, and, uh, and Clint, we'll see. Uh, I think it will be a similar scheme. Uh, certainly that's, that seemed to be the case uh, from what we've heard. But, and, uh, but what new wrinkles does he, does he bring in? Is there a little bit more motion pre-snap? That's one thing. I've heard uh, a lot from Ron Johnson on the Vikings uh, post-game show. He thought they were a little bit too much. We're going to line up like this, and this is what we're going to run. Um, there, there maybe needs to be a little bit more window dressing, so some pre-snap motion from a from even Thielen, JJ, but also also a guy like D.D. Westbrook. If he gets on the field, he hasn't really got on the field yet uh, as of this recording, but uh, D.D. Westbrook's a speed guy. Um, how do they utilize Kene Wangu 
and Amir Smith-Marset, two speed offensive weapons that they took in the draft. Dan Chisena, who's more known for special teams, but I've been out of training camp a few times. He has looked very quick off the line and could be, if he makes the team, a big-bodied uh, wide receiver who can beat you deep. So they've got some the tight ends. Weapons. The tight ends, Irv. Irv, really, you know, Rudolph – Rudolph was a little bit limited, as you said, athletically. Irv, not as much. Tyler Conklin, good athlete. So, and we saw that more as the season went along. So, tight ends haven't been a huge part of the Kubiak offense in the past, but will it be for the younger Kubiak? We'll see. And then special teams as well. New coordinator, Marwan Malouf out, Ryan Ficken in, who many thought should have gotten the job before. Um, he was the assistant. Now he's the head guy. How is he going to change up the special teams, which, as you said, need to improve quite dramatically, um, I think, in Mike Zimmer's eyes, for them to be the type of team that they want to be? Because as explosive as this offense can be, they were fourth in the league in yards last year. It's still what Zimmer – well, offense is the identity for now, but Zimmer, I think, by the end of the season would love if defense and special teams were the identity and then running the ball with Dalvin Cook. So we'll see how – One last plays. point – one last point to something you were talking about. I, we can't forget Kirk started the season off terribly last year yeah, and was really slow and it did put us in a hole and it's not all on him. Obviously we've talked about the defensive issues, but then the, towards the rest of the season, he was incredible. Some of those numbers might've been inflated because they were behind because the defense was so bad. And so we had to throw it a lot, but you know, how many offensive coordinators has Kirk had now? And I, you know, so I think fan as fans, we want more of the window dressing. We want this offense to be a, a little less predictable uh, for as talented as Dalvin Cook is when everyone knows you're going to run the ball. I think that that's a little yeah. bit of a problem. Um, but yet, how do we get that consistency? Because when you look at the schedule, if they don't get off to a good start, that middle, you know, the second third of the season really could get ugly um, and it could put them in a hole that makes it difficult to make the playoffs. If you, if you can't find a way to beat that, you know, the um, Cincinnati at the beginning or steal one against the Browns and, and some of these other teams that they're playing early. Um, I think Arizona's on there uh, that you really need to, um, you know, to beat um, a number of them in order to give yourself a good chance uh, to make the playoffs. Yeah, it's a week seven bye, which I think comes at a pretty good time, uh, a little before the midway point. So they lucked out there. But like you said, it's a tough schedule after the bye. I think you, you got to hope for five and one pre-bye. And, and it starts with at Cincinnati. That's got to be a win. And, uh, and at Arizona, really, Arizona is a solid team, but a team that if you're playing, if you're a 10-11 win team, like we hope the Vikings will be that that's a game you have to win too. And then you come home for Seattle finally at home. Can you imagine that place? If, it, if the two and O Vikings team comes home, good luck to Seattle operating in that place as good as they are. You know, I don't see the Vikings losing a, a, a home opener. So you could be looking at a really good start as long as they could take care of business on the road. Absolutely. Completely agree. All right, that'll do it for episode one of the Martian Matcha. Thanks again to Lavelle Enil III and uh, Matt Galvan. I'm Marshall Kellner. We'll see you next time.